There we go. Just a reminder as we begin this morning, I think we're good anyways looking around, but uh, for parents, today's message is more mature. Uh, about, uh, we're talking about sexual immorality and impurity, so I sent an email out this week just to make sure you were aware so you could either talk to your kids ahead of time or put them in the children's ministry, but looks like we're good. Um, so as we continue through the letter of Ephesians in our series that we've been in, Lord of All, we're now in Ephesians 5, which uh, was just read for us. And Paul, Paul in Ephesians 5 is continuing to address the different areas of our lives that Jesus wants to be Lord over. And he continues to contrast in Ephesians 5 the difference between the old life that we lived before Christ and the new life that we are living in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, you can be in Ephesians 5, 1 to 7, not really jumping around much this morning, just going to be in these seven verses. Uh, But what we see in these first few verses in Ephesians 5 is there's a major contrast in these verses between the first two verses and the following five verses that I think Paul uses to establish a divide between what is God's standard of love and fallen humanity's distortion of love that occurs in deeply grievous ways. Paul begins chapter 5 reflecting on the new life that the person should walk in when they belong to Jesus Christ. It's a life which Paul spent the second half of chapter 4 looking at. It's a life that we've spent the last several weeks back in November and last week looking at how there's different aspects of this new life in Christ, whether it be last week as we talked about forgiveness or previous weeks about how we walk in anger and dealing with anger uh, and and other aspects of life. But Paul says, he begins chapter 5 by saying, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in verse 2, he says, walk in love. And so Paul's saying, therefore, because he's pointing back to all the things that he already talked about in chapter 4. And he's saying, listen, these are the things that you should be doing as followers of Christ. This is how you should be living. Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love in these ways that I've already described. And what Paul does in verse 2 of chapter 5 is he defines for us further um, what it means or actually who it means to model after the love that we are to walk in. He says in Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul is telling us that as followers of Jesus, our love is to be modeled after Jesus' love for us. And Jesus' love is characterized by a very specific element. And that element is sacrifice. Paul says he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so for us to be imitators of God, for us to walk in love as Christ has loved us, that means that we walk in this love that is characterized by self-sacrifice. And Paul begins chapter 5 with this exhortation and this reminder for us. And I think he does that. He reminds us of this 
self-sacrificial love that we're to walk in so that what he addresses next in verse 3 will be recognized by us immediately as something that is the complete antithesis of the kind of love that we are called to walk in. Paul says, be imitators of God. Walk in love as Jesus Christ has loved you. Love sacrificially, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. So Paul does this really hard left turn. He goes from talking about love and what it looks like to walk sacrificially in love, and it says, but don't do these things. So why does he contrast love with sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness? And it's because they are the complete opposite of God's definition of love. If we are called to a self-sacrificial love, then one of the ways that love gets most perversely distorted is in sexual immorality and impurity. This is what we're going to address this morning. The perversion of love that occurs in these acts. See, God's ideal for love, especially when it comes to sexuality, is not in any way reflected in our culture. Our culture teaches the very opposite of what God calls loving. And I think that we have to understand that as followers of Jesus, who are also products of our culture, as we renew our minds with the things of God, God's standard of love is going to, at times, bump up against some of the views from our old self, against some of the views that are influenced by our culture that remain in us, that need to be dealt with. Some of the views that maybe we've become numb towards because it's just become all too common to see in our culture around us and sometimes even in the church. For example, for me to stand up here and say the following, there is no circumstance, there is no situation in which sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is in any way loving. If you're engaging in sexual activity with someone and you are not married to them as your spouse, you are not loving that person. We may understand and we may agree, yes, God made sex for marriage between a man and a woman. But because of our culture, we can be numb to the fact that to engage in it outside of marriage is not loving. We can think, yeah, but they, they love each other. It doesn't matter. That act is not loving. 
You may well love your girlfriend. You may well love your boyfriend. But it is in no way an act of love to have sexual relations with them outside of marriage. It is truthfully an entirely selfish act. Why? Because to do so is to pursue pleasure for yourself that God has intrinsically attached to a responsibility without taking on that responsibility. It's selfish. Our culture is marked by this sort of thing. Our culture is marked by the pursuit of pleasure without any desire to take the responsibility that inherently comes with that pleasure. The pleasure of marriage without the responsibility of marriage is selfish indulgence at the expense of another person. It's self-serving. It's not self-sacrificial. That's why Paul says it's not proper because it's about us rather than the other person and loving them well. The church doesn't talk about this enough and I can feel it by the tension in the room. We all know this in theory, but we don't talk about this. We need to hear it. So this morning, I want to talk about what is the root of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness? What's one way that Paul, according to him, we can combat this sort of thing? And then I want to end by addressing those who struggle with sin in this area. All with the hope that Jesus would be Lord of this aspect of our lives so that we walk in freedom. And so with that in mind, I want to address just two thoughts before I really dig into this. First, when followers of Jesus talk about sexual ethics, we need to understand that we don't approach it from a purely morality, rules-based perspective. It is, of course, a moral issue, but we need to approach it like everything else from a gospel-centered perspective. We can't approach it from simply, here's the rules, now follow them. Don't do this. It's not how we approach anything in the Christian life. So what I mean by this is people in more conservative circles, people in other religions, they're going to share a similar sexual ethic to followers of Jesus. But without the gospel as the foundation of our sexual ethic, without Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the motivation for our sexual ethic, our efforts become all about the letter of the law and morality. And so when we communicate our sexual ethic, it must point to Jesus Christ as the motivation. Because when prohibitions to sexual activity are made, like don't have sex before marriage, without the gospel being the foundation, then those prohibitions create people who trust in themselves, who trust in their own morality, rather than the goodness of God, 
through Jesus Christ. You see, there is a difference between being a sexually moral person and a gospel-bound person. And the difference is the motivation behind our sexual ethic. If Jesus is not Lord and a sexual ethic is based purely on morality, purely on the letter of the law, then no matter how well an individual lives according to a biblical sexual ethic, they're still bankrupt before God. John Piper, he says it this way, morality without the gospel is suicide. So when we communicate and live out sexual ethics and morality, it can't be merely based on this is what the letter of the law says. It has to flow from an overflow of a heart captivated by the gospel and captivated by Jesus Christ. Right? Like I said last week, so much of what we do as followers of Jesus is in response to what God has done for us. And that's the same with our sexual ethic. It flows as a response from the grace that we have received through Jesus, Jesus Christ it flows from this place of Jesus is king and I live according to that. And so the motivation of our sexual ethic is love, which is far more powerful than law. See, one brings life and one kills. One brings life and one condemns. So there's an approach to sexual ethics with Jesus as Lord that is abundantly life-giving. Second thing, the second thing I want to say is there is a deep need for us. It ties right into the first thing. There's a deep need for us to have a robust understanding of the how and the why behind our sexual ethics as followers of Jesus. Parents, this is so important for our children. To say to our children, Flee from sexual immorality, flee from impurity, without giving our children a robust foundation as to why and how it will make their pursuit of godly sexual ethics so much more challenging in a world that is screaming at them the complete opposite of what we're trying to build into them. Without a robust why, without a robust how, I'm telling you, they will have an insufficient reason for withstanding temptation when it comes and they will give in to it. This is why the conversation around sexual ethics must be rooted in Christ, must be rooted in God's design must be rooted in Jesus as Lord, a personal relationship to Him, a response to Him, an overflow of our love for Him into the abundant life that He gives us. That it's from this place of understanding He's for us. He's not withholding anything good from us. He's protecting us. You see, in my experience, I grew up in a house where we were a morally upright house, whatever that means. But we weren't followers of Jesus. My parents desired to give my sister and I some background in faith. They weren't followers of Christ themselves. We went to church every Sunday for a long time. It didn't mean anything in our household, though. And so my parents always taught me, don't have sex outside of marriage. 
Well, as someone who deeply respected their parents, that held me for a really long time. And that held me through some temptations. But I'm telling you, without like a deeper understanding of why, right? It got to that point in my life where it was like, okay, but, but why? Well, just don't. Just wait for marriage. Okay, but why? Why does it matter? And they couldn't tell me why. Because they didn't know. But we know. We need to tell our children that. Because I'm telling you, that point of temptation came. I didn't have a good enough reason to say no. Because I didn't know why. We have to give our children a robust understanding of why. And one of the reasons why a strong sexual ethic is so important, I'm just going to take God out of it for a moment. Like, what? I'm just taking God out just for a second. Just from a very practical level, not even a God level, just like a naturalistic level right now. Don't show your hands in this, just think about it. But how many of you, your greatest regret in your life is of a sexual nature? The thing in life that hurt you most or hurt those around you is of a sexual nature. Whether it's been something that you did or something that's been done to you. The reality is, in most spaces that you go to, it would be the majority of people. That something has happened in the area of sexuality that has deeply hurt them and has been one of the hardest things for them to walk through. Right, so even from that understanding, from a complete naturalistic understanding, knowing the limitations that God places on our sexual ethic, it's, it's not from this perspective of he's withholding pleasure from us. He's a loving father. He's protecting his children so that when the time is right, his children can unashamedly enjoy the pleasure that he has gifted to them. Sex is good. It's from God. He's gifted it to us. He just wants us to enjoy it, the pleasure that he has in store for us in the right context. And so Paul says, these things must not be named among you. So what are we talking about? Let's define our terms here. Sexual immorality is the first thing Paul says. It comes from this Greek word that you're going to recognize right away. It's the Greek word porneia, which obviously the English word pornography comes from, but the most direct translation of this Greek word is the word fornication in English. And so it's this kind of all-encompassing word that can fit any number of sexual perversions, but most often it's used to describe any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And then Paul says impurity, it comes from the Greek word akatharsia, and it just means uncleanness. So what Paul's talking about here, when he talks about uncleanness, he means before God. And so he's talking about this moral uncleanness before the Lord. And it often, this word often comes with the context of lust. It comes with this context of restless or reckless living. It comes with this context of wasteful living. It, it has this idea behind it of someone who has absolutely no restraint and they're just indulgent. 
So when you put these two together, sexual immorality and impurity, basically what happens is it captures all sorts of sexual activity that God would consider unclean, whether we're talking sex apart from marriage or pornography or entertainment on a screen that commends a worldly sexual ethic or lustful thoughts or fantasies, whatever. It's kind of this all-encompassing box of everything. And then he uses this word covetousness, which comes from this Greek word pleonexia, and it just means to have a greedy desire. And it comes with this idea of having this aggression, this aggressive desire for more. It's to look upon something that is not yours, has not been given to you, and to want to take it. And so, I don't need to go into detail about all the ways that this can play out in people's lives. All the ways that it can potentially play out in this room. You know in your own life, if there is an area where your sexual ethic has fallen, and the Holy Spirit, as we continue this morning, will bring that forward, will convict you of that, and it will be up to you how you respond. There's a way that we respond where we remain in bondage and stuck, and there's a way that we respond to bring freedom to our lives. So let's look at the root problem behind these things. Read verse 3 to 5. Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking, which are out of place. These are just lesser things that Paul's listing in the same kind of vein. Filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. So these are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, that, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there's a few things to unpack in these verses. The first thing that we can see in these verses is that verse 3 and verse 5, they correspond to one another. Paul lists sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness in both of them. And so Paul's thought between verse 3 and verse 5 is progressing. Right? He begins by saying these things are not proper among saints. And then he says to everyone who practices them, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, that's a pretty serious thing that Paul's saying, and that really begs a question for us this morning, because I personally believe, this is where I land theologically, I believe in eternal security for followers of Jesus. I believe wholeheartedly, if your faith is genuine, it is God who saved you, it is God who holds you fast, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of your inheritance. So then, Paul, why is Paul warning in a letter that was written to Christians that anyone who practices these things does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We have to answer that question. And in answering that question, we'll discover the root problem of sexual immorality. So let's answer it. Notice how in verse 3, Paul pairs sexual immorality and impurity together. But he doesn't pair covetousness in the same way. 
Look how he writes it. He says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. This is because Paul is classifying them as different forms of the same underlying issue. Sexual immorality and impurity, they're one form. Covetousness is another. And often sexual immorality and impurity are going to flow from covetousness. Right? It starts with a greedy desire and then it grows into something that you act on that is immoral and impure. So they're different forms of the same thing and they flow into each other. But what are they forms of? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that every, anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. That is the root problem of all sexual immorality, of all impurity, and of all covetousness. Idolatry. See, all three of these things are a perversion of love. And all of them reveal something about the one who indulges in them. It reveals that God is not treasured in the way that he should be. It reveals that Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not King, in the way that he ought to be for a follower of Christ. And if that's the case in a human heart, then that person is an idolater. An idol is anything that replaces the one true God. It is anything that replaces our devotion to him. Idolatry is just an excessive devotion or reverence to something other than God. That's all idolatry is. And that's what the life of a sexually immoral, impure person reveals, that God is not on the throne of their heart. That Jesus has not settled down to be home as Lord of their heart. This is why Paul warns. Those who practice such things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Because an idolater, by definition, cannot have an inheritance with God because their ultimate devotion is somewhere else. So Paul writes this to Christians in the church in Ephesus because he knows the truth that is the exact same truth today, that churches will be filled with both believers and idolaters, that there will be people who profess Christ, but whose ultimate allegiance is not to Jesus. And sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness are some of the marks of that person. Because it reveals they don't have faith. They don't trust in God. They don't submit to how God has intrinsically designed sexuality to work and the value and responsibility that he's assigned to it. Let me just give you an example to tease this out. We'll just go back to the example that we went to in the beginning, sex outside of marriage. Ultimately, sex outside of marriage, ultimately fornication is just you saying to God, I don't trust you. 
I don't trust you, God. I don't trust how you designed this to work. I don't think you have my best interests at heart. And so you may have designed it this way for this space, but I'm going to take it in my own way. That's all we're saying. That's idolatry. It's selfish. It's saying, God, I'm going to take what you designed on my terms, not yours. That, by definition, is a lack of faith. That, by definition, is a lack of trust. Now, I understand we're feeling this this morning. I understand we don't talk about this stuff enough in church. I also understand I'm speaking to a room of people who struggle with sin. Hi, I'm one of them. Some of whom, like me, have sinned in this area in our life in the past. Maybe some are struggling in this area right now. So I want to be clear. I am not saying, nor is Paul saying, everyone who gives in to sexual temptation is an idolater that no longer has an inheritance with God. If that was the case, grace is not a thing. Jesus Christ died for all of our sin, past, present, and future. It covers everything when we trust in him. And so whether we've committed idolatry or any other sin, most of them just fit under idolatry anyways, but whether we've committed anything, there is forgiveness available when we repent, when we come before the Lord and truly turn from our wicked ways. But what we have to understand, church, is there is a difference between a repentant sinner struggling with something covered by the blood of Christ and an unrepentant sinner who continues in these things. Grace is freely available. And at the same time, understand you can't continually claim the name of Christ and walk in sexual immorality and impurity without any repentance at all. It doesn't work. Like for some, that means stop having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Like to continually do it just shows a heart of unrepentance. See, Paul says in verse 6 and 7, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, because of sexual immorality, because of impurity, because of covetousness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul's warning us, listen, if anyone brings you to a gospel that says, hey, you're covered by the blood of Christ, you're good. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's garbage. It's a lie. Jesus covers all of our sins, but we are called to walk in holiness before him. And so we will fall. But if you just walk unrepentant before the Lord going, I'm good. No, you're not. I think so many in the Christian church walk that way. I'm covered. I can just do whatever I want to do in this area of your life. No, you can't. If you believe that, then you don't truly know Jesus Christ as Lord. So how do we combat this kind of thing? 
I'm going to give you exactly what Paul says. It's very interesting. It's not something you would ever expect. Paul gives us a really unusual way that we combat this. He says in verse 3 and 4, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. That seems interesting. Paul's like, don't have these. Don't. Sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, all this sort of... No, no, none of that. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's your answer, Paul? That doesn't seem helpful. But it's scripture, so it's got to be helpful. right? Because the opposite of covetousness, the opposite of idolatry is a heart of thankfulness. It is a heart of thanksgiving. It is a heart that knows, God, you are for me. God, you have given me all good things. And if there are some things that you have withheld from me for a season, there is a reason for it. And I am thankful for that because you're a good father. Like that's the kind of heart that Paul says is going to combat these things when we know God is for us, that he has given us all good things. And those things that he hasn't given us yet, they are for our good as well. Like this is the kind of robust understanding we need so that when temptation comes, we go, no, I trust what God has designed. No, I'm not going to step into that because I know what my father has for me is so much better than that. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans, about the renewal of our mind. I'm not saying it's easy. It's a process. It takes meditation on the word of God, but it is part of that process of renewing our mind, of trusting in God. I'm going to walk in thankfulness knowing you have given me all good things. It comes from meditating on his word, trusting in his promises. We talked about this in our devotions, right? That God has given us so many promises, over 700 promises. Some of us need to go to scripture, claim those promises of purity and walking in holiness and walking in godliness and allow God to renew our mind. You know, we look for worldly ways to fix these things, but often we just trust what God has said will work. It will work. We just don't do it. We don't have enough faith. I'm telling you, your mind will be renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit when you meditate on the Word of God. I'm sweating. Uh, I want to just end with a word to those who are struggling. I don't begin to think for a minute that there aren't those in this room struggling with this very thing. Any, any place. I mean, let's just look at the statistics of men and pornography, and there's your answer. Like 95%? Something crazy high like that. So there's your answer. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, to those struggling with this, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin... A person commits it is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, where we often fall as followers of Christ is, is we don't flee. We don't actually take that first word seriously. We walk away, look back, kind of walk slowly sometimes. No, Paul says, flee, run. Jesus says, 
cut off your hand, tear out your eye. Like, what we have to understand is to be able to fight against the power of sexual immorality and impurity, it takes extreme things. And we don't like extreme things because they're uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, that's what has to happen in order to get free of these things. And so just a couple of thoughts for people. If you are struggling with something, you need a trusted friend that can walk with you. You need someone else that is walking alongside you that when you aren't going to flee, they're going to go, run! I can see it coming. You're blind to it. Run! You need that person that's going to walk with you and tell you when that is coming. I want to talk about the reality of addiction, the reality of spiritual oppression. Church, as we talk about this, we don't just fight things in the natural. We have to recapture the idea as followers of Jesus, the truth, that there are demonic influences, that we have an enemy that wants nothing more than to rob and steal and kill and destroy. And one of the best ways to do that is through sexual immorality. Church, there are going to be people, maybe in this room, who struggle with addictions when it comes to sexuality, who struggle with addictions when it comes to pornography, who struggle with addictions in any aspect of these things. And sometimes what happens is we fight things in the natural and we come to the end of ourselves. We're like, why isn't it working? And it's because it's a spiritual problem and you need spiritual help. You need the power of Jesus Christ over your life. And so if you're just struggling with sexual immorality, addiction, things that you cannot get free of, and you're like, I've tried everything, I would say, come and get help. Come to the church. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. We believe in the power of Jesus to cast out demonic things, to cast away demonic oppression. I tell you this because that's exactly what had to happen in my life. I had to be delivered of some things. And now some of you are like, whoa! We can talk about it after if that freaks you out. But that's exactly what happened. I had to be delivered of some things in my life through the power of prayer. My encouragement to you this morning, don't remain as you are. If you are struggling with sexual immorality, if you are struggling with impurity, don't remain in the dark. Because all that happens is you just get stuck in shame. You just get stuck in guilt. Oh, wretched person that I am. And the enemy wants to keep you there. Because so long as you're in shame, so long as you're in guilt, so long as this is in the darkness, you'll never be free. So don't remain as you are. If I could encourage you in one thing as your pastor, get whatever thing you're struggling with into the light. Tell someone. Seek help, please. You need freedom in this area, and Jesus came to set the captives free. 
and that shame and that guilt that you feel, that judgment that you think that people are going to judge you, no. You come to me with any of these struggles, I will never judge you. I will walk with you. I will help you because I know what it's like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, I thank you for loving us enough not to leave us the way that we are. You sent your son because we're all sinners in need of grace. Father, for some of us, that area of grace that we so desperately need in our lives is in our sexuality, is in our struggles in this area. Father, I pray right now against shame. I pray right now against guilt. I pray against an enemy that would lie and say, you keep that hidden. You can't tell anybody that. I break that lie off in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray freedom over your people. I pray freedom over those who are struggling with this. Father, I pray that they would recognize that there is new life in Christ in this area of life beyond this struggle, that there is more. Father, I pray for the young people who are not married yet, God, that you would give them a robust understanding of the why, why you have called them to walk this way, what you have in store for them in marriage that is so beautiful, God. Protect their hearts from the lies of the world, Father. Protect the young ones from the lies that would scream at them. Father, may we as parents, may we as people who know better communicate this to our children, not shy away from it, have these strong conversations about the why so that they may understand their Father in heaven has a beautiful plan for them and for their sexuality. Father, I just pray freedom, freedom in the name of Jesus. May we flee from it and walk in the light. In Jesus' name.